This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is May 13th, 2021. On today's episode, it's proxy season. That's when companies hold their annual meetings, and these include proposals from shareholders about specific actions they'd like the company or the board to take. Right now, we're pretty much smack dab in the middle of two of the more anticipated annual meetings. Berkshire Hathaway's was on May 1st, and you may have seen the dust up from that around climate and diversity issues. The ExxonMobil meeting on May 26th, well, they will face challenges to overhaul their board and their entire approach to climate change. Now, as our guests would be the first to tell you, when it comes to this type of engagement or stewardship, well, the story hardly starts in 2021. It starts with pioneers like Robert Monks and Alistair Ross Gooby. Now, if those names don't mean anything to you at the moment, they will soon enough. Let me introduce our guests, who we were thrilled to get on the phone at the same time. First, we have Tim Humans, head of North America Engagement for EOS at Federated Hermes. I'm calling here from uh, my home office on the coast of Maine, just south of Portland. And right down the road from me is uh, where Bob Monks, Robert Monks, is from, uh, one of the, the founding people in the whole field of corporate governance, written many books. And one of his protégés is Rick Marshall. Yes, Rick Marshall, who many of you may know and who we're very excited to welcome back to the pod. Rick does corporate governance in general, um, but I also head up the uh, editorial committee for the ESG part of the business. The ESG business at MSEI, of course. Hermes has a special significance to Rick because... Very early on in my career, and way back in 1997, I had an opportunity to travel from Maine uh, with Bob Monks and um, work for a, a period of time at Hermes. And uh, this was very early days in Hermes' period of time as, as an actively engaged investor, as, as a steward. And a lot of that was thanks to the other person that you mentioned, Adam, Alistair ross Gooby, who headed up Hermes at that time. And uh, Bob and Alistair met up and made a connection, and we came to London and partnered with Hermes and um, created what eventually became the Hermes Focus Fund, and eventually that spun off into governance for owners and uh, uh, where Tim is today, Hermes EOS. EOS at Federated Hermes is one of the world's largest investment stewardship teams with uh, globally 70 professionals. And we provide engagement and voting recommendation services combined called stewardship on behalf of over 50 pension funded asset manager institutional clients around the world uh, with assets under advice totaling $1.5 trillion. I asked Rick what proxy season has been like so far. Here's what he said. It's been just a, a fascinating period of time to be part of that ecosystem, the, the, the broader part of the world where big corporations and big investors come together and interact and put their cards on the table in effect because companies must submit their their directors to the vote and uh, shareholder proposals are introduced into the mix and at Hermes is 
is uh, an enormously important player in this space and right in the, in the middle of what's going on this year in, in so many different ways. I followed up by asking Rick why this proxy season is so special. But before we get to that answer, I should tell you that from there on in, honestly, I really didn't have to do much. Rick and Tim had such a strong rapport that the conversation just flowed naturally and, frankly, without interruption from me. So, like me, I invite you now to sit back and just listen to two really brilliant guys catch up a bit, explain why this year is so different, and how we got here. What's most striking to me this year, at a time when we're still very much in the throes of of a pandemic of of global impact, is just how important climate change has become. Uh, This is absolutely top of mind for so many investors and so many companies. Um, I guess it's the next big challenge that we, we face as a global entity. And maybe the, the pandemic and the global nature of the pandemic has brought that into a sharper relief. That's followed closely by the human capital issues that the pandemic has highlighted, um, everything from health and safety concerns in the workforce to things like racial diversity, which, I mean, these issues have been around and argued and discussed for a long, long time, but I've never seen anything like the level of seriousness that the discourse has taken this year. I mean, investors are really, really putting the pressure on companies. And many companies are responding very positively, I I might say. And of course, there's always a perpetual question about CEO pay and, you know, board skills and and tenure and, you know, all of the basics of corporate governance. But they, they live this year in the shadow of these bigger questions, climate change, biodiversity, racial diversity, human capital issues. I would agree with all those. But before we get into the specifics of each one of those, I cannot miss the opportunity since it is proxy season and CEO pay is always on the ballot, say on pay, at least for North American companies, for the most part, to plug my good friend Rick Marshall's landmark paper out of whack, U.S. CEO pay and long-term investment returns. Uh, The North American team at EOS at Federated Hermes refers to this not an every vote, but an almost every vote. That, that's awfully nice of you, Tim. It's, it's nice to hear. But, you know, it, when, when I started working on that paper and, and the immediate predecessor to it, you know, I went into it and said, really, ask a really basic question. What if we look at pay from the perspective of 10 years um, rather than the typical three years that, that uh, current long-term incentive plans are organized around? And the findings were were super, super interesting. Um, Much of it was really surprising to me. But I think if if I did anything important there at all, it was asking that key question. What if we look at this from a long-term perspective? And the idea that engagement and stewardship should be focused more and more on long-term issues has risen to greater importance. I mean, that's why we do do ESG in the first place. And that really is the context within which much of this is happening. So we've pretty much covered the landscape here, Rick. G, executive comp embodies a lot of G, not all definitely, but a lot. E, climate, the most important long-term issue for EOS's clients around the world. And second, uh, the second most important issue is human capital, human rights, racial equity, 
and inclusion and related matters. I'm really curious to hear from you a little bit more about how your firm prioritizes its its selection of, of firms to focus on. And we saw this just recently with the Berkshire Hathaway uh, meeting where Hermes was one of three uh, major pension funds to file and support a shareholder proposal on climate change. What, how, how does all that work? How do you do that work that you do that has become so important? Um, it's a pretty simple process that has gone on for a long time in our 15 years of existence as EOS at, at Federated Hermes. We simply look at our clients' holdings, we pull them together, we pick for the most part, the top five or 600 companies globally. And then there is a little bit of, of matrixing that goes on with, you know, important companies uh, that are important to, you know, themes that our clients are, are caring about climate. So we'll, we'll make sure some of the biggest emitters are in our program. Uh, we do try to do a little bit of regional balancing uh, based on our clients' holdings. Uh, we'll also look at new and up and coming companies uh, that may be huge influencers or disruptors. And a big thing that I hope we'll talk about later is engaging on behalf of companies that have no shareholders at all, but are uh, simply have bondholders, the public publicly floated uh, debt uh, that we engage on as well. And and how does ESG fit into the picture here? I, I, I've heard you talk about ESG as the embodiment of a series of risks. So when you engage a company, your much of your focus is... Here are the risks that we perceive. You you have assets at risk in terms of their exposure to climate. What is 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 that list of at risk elements or factors? Is that essentially how you pick the topics and the areas in which you're engaged? Both risks and opportunities. We engage with our clients. The way we formally get together with our clients at EOS twice a year. We have what we call our client advisory council, and our clients are somewhat self-governing. We have a client advisory board. Uh, we've been doing this a long time, and we, we really formalize the feedback that we get from clients. And it's very simple. This is the, from their composite investment analysis, climate change number one, human capital, human rights number two. That's what they think is the most important to their long-term uh, portfolio health, so therefore it's the most important to us at ES. Do you get pushback on those? When you raise those issues with, with companies, is that an easy sell these days? I would say it's becoming an easier sell. Uh, many companies and regulators, SEC is looking at climate change uh, again, uh, starting in 2021. But increasingly, companies are indeed uh, stepping up. I would say the big change came when uh, EOS was the author of a shareholder proposal in 2019 at British Petroleum that through a lot of engagement with the board of BP by EOS, the board of BP supported, I'll say that again, the board of BP supported a climate change reporting shareholder proposal co-authored by EOS. The big thing is that climate change is really not about alpha, it's about beta. Many have talked about this. It's, it's something that affects the entire world. So the, the former idea that you could just externalize these costs really doesn't work because 
everybody has to think about this. Let's jump right into Berkshire Hathaway because they're an outlier. Berkshire Hathaway, uh, at their annual meeting in response to a climate reporting shareholder proposal that we at EOS uh, co-sponsored along with CTPQ, Cas de Depot Placement de Quebec, and uh, CalPERS, the California Public Employees Retirement System, just asking for some climate reporting at the parent company level because that's the only entity that shareholders can buy shares in, not in the subsidiaries. Um, Warren Buffett's response was to evaluate our shareholder proposal as, quote, asinine, end quote. Uh, and he said that the company would not uh, do climate-related reporting at the parent company level, would not tell its subsidiaries to report up to the company if the climate was material to those subsidiaries. And many commentators have evaluated that he's completely out of step. Uh, we were seeing a lot of companies now orient reporting of climate change towards TCFD. We're not making enough progress fast enough, and we're not having enough climate reduction action fast enough, but things are moving in the right direction for most, not all companies. We've come such a long way from the the old knee-jerk reaction, shareholder proposal, okay, we we oppose it. I mean, this is what companies have, have done for most of the, the past couple of decades, but suddenly it's begun to shift. And we are seeing companies start to accept and support. In fact, there are a lot more potential shareholder proposals out there that don't come to a vote because the company management reaches an agreement with the investor who initially proposed the idea. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to come to that point. But when you get to a case like Berkshire Hathaway, it highlights so many different aspects of, of what's going on here. I, I know that in terms of the absolute vote, the proposal did not win. But it didn't win because Warren Buffett himself holds 32 about percent of the, of the voting power at Berkshire Hathaway and clearly, as he stated, um, voted against it. But I, when we calculated the numbers and looked at the remainder of the vote, it seemed to us, uh, it's a clo- close call, but it seemed to us that the proposal actually gained a slight majority of the independent vote, the, the non-Warren Buffett vote, if you will. And that's incredible to get that kind of level of support at, at a company run by Warren Buffett. Um, it's just an astounding thing. It's, it's such a, um, a change of events. And again, for me, it highlights the level of seriousness with which investors across the board are looking at these questions. Our analysis is showing the same thing. We haven't completed it yet, but uh, indicatively, we do think that the climate reporting shareholder proposal at Berkshire Hathaway in the 2021 annual meeting did get a majority of support from non-insider shareholders. So our, our initial numbers are are leaning in that direction as well. I think though even more amazing than that, Rick, is the the change that you referred to earlier about uh, major companies now supporting shareholder proposals uh, this proxy season, especially regarding the, the critically important issue globally, but especially in the US of racial equity. I'll just highlight four companies that receive shareholder proposals similar to many other companies that receive shareholder proposals about racial equity, 
uh, equity reporting, racial equity audits. Uh, it was kicked off by the CEO of IBM and this IBM board that received a shareholder proposal on, on racial equity reporting and said, you know, we don't agree with everything in this, but it, it's close to what we already do. So we're going to support this. Then he, he wrote a letter to President Biden and kind of really publicized it. BlackRock, Morgan Stanley, and a bunch of other large financial institutions received a, a shareholder proposal from Change to Win. And, and BlackRock also said, you know, we don't agree with everything in the supporting statement. Uh, we don't necessarily know what a racial audit is, but we do a lot of these things already. So we're going to largely uh, support this and implement it. And the proposal was withdrawn. Morgan Stanley said the same thing. Wendy's, the restaurant chain company, received a racial shareholder proposal and the board supported it. So this is the amount of change that this is representing in U.S. companies is just monumental. Shareholder proposals are by their nature precatory, means they're advisory, they're a wish. And so companies do have some latitude in their implementation of a shareholder proposal, which means that if a company is already doing what the shareholders re request, why don't they just support it? I think we're, we're seeing this play out globally. Um, Hermes is a global investor, and so you've got colleagues doing what you do in, in other regions as well. Are you seeing a similar kind of change in other areas? Uh, is it better? Is it worse? Um, what, what's, what's the rest of the world look like from a, an active steward, large investor with global holdings in uh, proxy season 2021? Well, the message uh, gets back to the pandemic from a global viewpoint. And that message is that, first of all, it's tragic. There was many deaths, too many, too many deaths around the world. But the economy globally appears to have good prospects to make it through okay on the other side. Why is that? And that is because major central banks, in addition to the, what governments did, have pumped in excess of $15 trillion into the global economy since last March. This, this is probably triple the amount that went into the economy during the global financial crisis. Corporations have been both the instruments of the disbursement of this through banks, et cetera, but also have been the recipients of this through central banks participating in the bond markets. Governments have intervened to keep the economy afloat. Central banks have. It appears to have worked. So is there at least a moral obligation to recognize this intervention that have kept all these corporations and therefore shareholders above water. I think boards around the world are recognizing this. I, I totally agree. And I, I think you, you introduce a really interesting new player here. It's not just about shareholders anymore. It's also about bondholders and the, the importance of their participation in this. But in fact, there's another holder word that, that comes into play, and we've been hearing more and more of this over the past few years, but I think the pandemic has, has made this idea even more important. And that's the stakeholder question, which 
which encompasses every player here. It encompasses the world, its customers, its employees, its communities. It's everyone, and, and it's almost a definitional concept when, when we're talking about ESG, because it's not just environmental impact and opportunity. It's not just social impact and opportunity. It's about the integration of interest of all of the different players who participate in this broader global economy. It is, it is a, a simple concept that the pandemic has just brought to the front, that if the economy globally or, or for any country doesn't have workers that are employed and doesn't have healthy communities and the companies don't have a supply chain, there really is no economy. There, there is no opportunity. And governments and central banks saw this. And so that, that's why this unprecedented level of support came out. So beyond the pandemic, it's just important to long-term value creation. And this is, was recognized in the pandemic, again, by the Securities and Exchange Commission under the previous administration. Chairman Clayton put out a chairman's guidance on April 8th of 2020 that said all U.S. companies should put out forward-looking strategies that include stakeholder strategies, specifically employee strategies and social welfare strategies, because, in the chair's guidance said, this is material to investors. The forward-looking strategy, citing all kinds of safe harbors being disclosed, that includes employee strategies is material to investors. Because, you know, how do you create long-term value when you have a company? The company has employees, it has customers, it has suppliers, works in communities, it operates on the planet. I mean, all these things just sensibly go together in the interest of long-term value. Absolutely. And, and you know, thinking about the SEC and, and Jay Clayton and the role of the regulatory bodies within any sovereign economy, it has seemed to me that we owe a debt to the implementation of say on pay um, just a few years ago. I mean, prior to that, we, we didn't have the same kind of interaction between shareholders and boards that we see now. At least that's been my experience. It is It has long seemed to me that say on pay created a doorway if you will. It opened up a channel of communication between investors and directors, specifically directors, not just management, but specifically the board that previously did not exist. And in proxy season, one of the great revelations of proxy seasons is how much did CEOs make for last year. Um, and so we're looking at that and, and it's getting a lot of press and there have been some really dramatic votes against pay. Uh, but I'd have to say, based on discussions with our clients who are, are looking to us for research, the big issue right now around pay isn't the amount of pay or or that disconnect uh, or or that complexity. Those those things are being talked about and there's votes being cast for sure. But the questions we're getting the most often have to do with is the company tying the executives' incentives to ESG? Are they tying if, if a company has a, a particularly high profile in terms of carbon intensity? Is that is a reduction in that level being tied to the CEO's incentive package? That's the number one question we're getting right now. Is that is that something that you're looking at? Yes, but I, I want to cast this trend 
in terms of long-term value and to kind of throw it back to the past. The, the trend to tie executive comp to some specific ESG measures needs to be where to ESG measures that are material to long-term value. And there's only a few that are uh, uh, for any company, a few specific ESG categories that are material to long-term value. You mentioned for a big emitter, reducing carbon is probably material to long-term value. If you tie customer performance, there's a stakeholder. If you tie employee uh, performance or welfare measures, there's a stakeholder. If you supply, if you have a supply chain critical um, uh, company, supply chain performance metrics, these are all obvious value creators. And there was somebody many years ago that tried to do this, uh, Henry Ford. Uh, Henry Ford, uh, not necessarily in his pay, but you know, he tried to uh, give his workers a massive pay raise uh, because one of the reasons why, because he thought it was a good thing for the economy as the largest employer in the United States at the time, but also he thought that all those employees that got that pay raise would buy a lot of Ford cars. But you know, he got sued by some shareholders, the Dodge brothers, and that didn't work out too well for him. But so this idea of, of being measured by stakeholders in investing capital allocation, having a capital allocation strategy towards key stakeholders is really, you know, an old idea, a conservative idea. I think it's not radical. You know, investing in customers or employees or the community is just is just prudent long-term thinking. I, I totally agree. I, I think I, I think your characterization of that approach as being the more conservative approach is exactly right. Uh, you know, with hindsight, after 25 plus years of, of looking at corporate governance, of looking at CEO pay, and looking at these questions of the relationship between shareholders, investors, and companies, it seems to me that the radical idea was the one that got away with us for a while there, and that was the idea of, of the primacy of shareholder value. And because once that took hold, it changed so many aspects of how companies were managed. It's changed how management schools trained executives to lead. It changed how investors and uh, investment research professionals evaluate a company's financials. It changed how we look at companies and their role in society. And, and it did it in a in a negative way, in a short-term, short-term focused way, and to a great extent, my my view is that we we're seeing the rise of ESG now, uh, not because it's something new and radical, and and um, you know, isn't that a cool new idea? But in fact, it's a it's a reversion to where we should have been all along, that we lost track of because we allowed this this uh, radical limited vision to to take hold and take over. Um, and it, it, it lasted too long. Now, now we do have say on pay in most jurisdictions, but only shareholders have a vote. Bondholders don't necessarily have a vote in say on, in, on pay. And I'm not saying that they should, but I think because the 15 trillion was pumped into the economy and mostly a lot of it was made available directly or indirectly through the bond markets, through different quantitative easing credit vehicles to keep the economy and mostly corporations afloat. I mean, 
this goes right through the CFO's area of responsibility. And bondholders look at everything. They, they look at everything in cash flow because in a low interest rate environment, uh, our bondholder clients tell us that they're interested not just in return on capital, but return of capital, return of principal. And while I'm not saying that bondholders are necessarily engaging on pay, they are engaging on long-term capital allocation. And they are very sensitive to the amount of capital that's put into things like shareholder buybacks versus investing in the growth of the company. How many large cap companies have floated equity in order to stay, stay above water during the pandemic? Hardly any. It's all the lifeline has all been the credit markets. And though the suppliers of the credit are looking at these long-term value factors, ESG. Makes perfect sense. I, I've got I've got some data open on my, my desktop right now. I've got uh, an update of dividend, buyback, CapEx, R&D, and uh, new debt for 2020. Uh, I want to append to some previous data that I had and see, you know, what what happened last year. How how did those uh, those relationships play out? And I can tell you from a pre preliminary chart I've done that um, buybacks plummeted, capex plummeted, and debt uh, skyrocketed. Um, Going to be interesting to, you know, unpack that a little bit more and see how how does that look by sector where you know where was the activity and and so on but um um these certainly are interesting interesting times to be a researcher so we are early days in proxy season and we've got some big important um meetings yet to come there's one in particular that I know I'm I'm watching um coming up on May 26th uh I assume you'll be um you'll be keeping an eye on that one and and maybe attending virtually Yes, Federal and Hermes, I, I believe, will be attending uh, virtually. It, the ExxonMobil meeting is what you're talking about. And uh, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. Some would say controversial because an activist, engine number one, it's called a, a, a new activist founded by Charlie Penner, who is the former managing director at Jana Partners. Um, it's an actual proxy contest. They're voting on two different slates of directors, a slate of directors that is offered by the company, the existing company board, but then the activist, it has a different slate of directors that includes some of the legacy directors, but four new directors uh, proposed by the activist. And the activist's position is that Exxon is not doing a good enough job in climate change and therefore is going to uh, proposed directors that the activist feels will do a better job governing the company for the upcoming energy transition and for a low carbon economy. So some big investors uh, out there, uh, CalPERS has recently said uh, publicly in, a, in an exempt solicitation that they will be supporting the dissident slate, the engine number one slate of directors, not the company slate, uh, legal in general, has come out, uh, EOSAD Federated Hermes has not come out with our publicly with our voting recommendation yet. But to say that this uh, vote is getting a lot of interest is a huge 
understatement. It's going to be very inter interesting to see what happens. So thanks, Rick. This has been a, a great discussion, as your and my discussions always are. Uh, you know, I have a lot of people to thank. I'll just keep it local, though. Uh, I'd like to thank here in Maine, uh, you. You got in this a lot earlier than I did, and I've learned a lot from you. But I also thank, down the road from me, uh, Bob Monks and all those who founded this whole field of corporate governance uh, many years ago. And I look forward to carrying on this conversation as we traditionally do up in Long Lake uh, this summer. So, Tim, it's been super, super interesting to talk. Um, as you say, always, um, we, we have some amazing conversations, both at a high level and also down in the weeds. And a lot of this work really is down in the weeds. Um, it, it's painstaking, sometimes difficult, complex work. Um, trying to make sense of, of the world through the lens of corporate stewardship. Um, it's been really, really terrific to, to visit today. I, I very much appreciate your time and appreciate um, Hermes agreeing to allow you to join us on the podcast today. That's all for this week. Our thanks to Tim and Rick, and of course to all of you for listening. Before we go... Let's check in with what's happening on MSCI's ESG Now podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Mike DiCibeto, host of the MSCI podcast ESG Now, where we discuss the week's news through an environmental, social, and governance lens. This week, we discuss how companies' exposure to modern slavery and coerced labor is affecting both their reputations and the viability of their supply chains. We also delve into the world of mining and indigenous nations and have a discussion about the hacking of a U.S. pipeline that caused a fuel crisis on the East Coast. Join us this week on Friday and subscribe to our weekly podcast, ESG Now, wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks. And don't forget... There's a new episode of Perspectives every two weeks, and you can always find our full catalog on MSCI.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.